Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. In the spring of 2020, we began to offer history lectures through our virtual museum lecture series live on YouTube. Now, with over 20 lectures, we're happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more people can enjoy these fascinating stories. If you want to catch the lectures in full, take a gander at our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. We will release most of the 20 lectures over the next few weeks, and as we add more lectures to YouTube, so too will they eventually appear here on the podcast. We hope these lectures provide a bit of historical joy, and also spark imagination and exploration into our city's rich history. More lectures are headed your way this fall. For details, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. On today's lecture, we join curator and supervisor of historical services, Kathleen Powell, as she talks about the history of Packard Electric and the early manufacturing of Oldsmobile and Rio cars here in St. Catharines. The lecture was originally presented on June 2nd, 2020. Enjoy the lecture. So let's talk about the Horseless Revolution and Packard Electric and Rio in St. Catharines. I'm not going to talk about the entirety of uh, car history in St. Catharines because that's a huge topic, but I'm going to start with the very early car history in the city, which covers these two companies. So the history of automobile manufacturing in St. Catharines dates back to the early turn of the 20th century. Uh, to begin the story, we need to go a little bit further back and we need to talk to talk about these two gents who are here on the screen. So even prior to cars being built in St. Catharines, two brothers, uh, James Ward Packer, Packard and William Dowd Packard, merged their Packard Lamp Company with the Dominion Electric Light Co or the Dominion Electric Company of Montreal. And they moved their operations to St. Catharines in 1891 to the former Neelan Mills building on the corner of Race and Geneva Streets in order to begin making incandescent lamps and later electric motors, many of which were used to operate the locks of the Third Welland Canal. As the company prospered, they expanded their range of manufactured goods to include transformers, and in 1902, they became the first Canadian company to make electric meters. So the story of Packard Electric is actually a really interesting story as well, which I'm really not gonna cover today, but it's important that we go back to the beginning of Packard Electric to kind of get a feel for how Packard fits in with the two cars that we're going to talk about this evening. Uh, 
But suffice it to say, their location at Race and Geneva Street was ideal as it had the advantage of close proximity to the water power from water diverted from the Third Welland Canal and sheep transportation also provided by that waterway. During their first year of operation, uh, sales reached $35,000 with a cost of labor only amounting to $6,700, which was a huge profit of $28,300. In 1900, the annual report of the St. Catharines Board of Trade stated that the capacity of the lamp department was 4,000 incandescent lamps per day. So that's pretty impressive. But as I mentioned earlier, the story of how cars became a part of Packard Electric goes way back to uh, these Packard brothers who is alleged were actually really frustrated because they owned a car called the Winton Car from the Winton Car Company. Uh, and they were so upset about owning this unreliable car, uh, which was this car that you can see here in the screen, uh, that they complained directly to Mr. Winton, um, who challenged the Packard brothers that if they didn't like his car, they could make one themselves. And so they did. Uh, and uh, so this was James Packard, who was the main complainant, and uh, him with his brother William uh, decided to build their very first prototype car in 1899. While the St. Catharines Company continued to keep the Packard name, in actual fact, no Packard cars were ever built in St. Catharines. In 1899, the Packard brothers sold out their interest in the Packard Electric Company to R.B. Hamilton, who was the company's secretary at the time. And then they returned to Warren, Ohio to start the Ohio Automotive Company. And then in 1902 to Detroit, where they started the Packard Motor Company. There was speculation that they sold off their interest in St. Catharines in order to finance their autom automobile interests in the United States which at the time was considered a very risky undertaking by lenders. While they were no longer apart, the company continued to have an interest in emerging technologies and new ventures. But even without the Packard brothers' interest, even without the Packard brothers' interest in making cars continued. In 1901, a large plant adjacent to the Neyland grist mill was per purchased for Packard Electric's new formed motor car division. This was the first complete automobile manufacturing industry in St. Catharines. And to make it more confusing, Packard Electric built, Olds, built the Oldsmobile Touring N runabout on license from Oldsmobile in the United States for distribution in Canada and the British Empire. So going back to this picture, you can see the motor car department is the building that's kind of like rounded with uh, little wedge-shaped uh, kind of side wings that comes out of it. And the building in the front of this slide is the Neyland grist mill that we saw in this, uh, this earlier picture. Okay, so around the turn of the century, Oldsmobile 
was the first car manufacturer to establish the idea of a supplier and distribution network across the United States and in foreign countries uh, with the interest of trying to stem the illegal copying of patents and designs and to take advantage of the, the, the open Commonwealth market. I'm gonna come back to, uh, uh, to this just a little bit later in the presentation about tariffs and markets, but that's an important part about why St. Catharines and why American companies were building cars here in St. Catharines at the time. The St. Catharines built cars that appeared in 1905 were mostly uh, lightweight. I'm gonna put a picture, here's a picture of what they were building. You can see in this picture, the very distinct shape of the building that we saw in the earlier drawing. So uh, the cars that appeared in 1905 were mostly lightweight, one and two cylinder runabouts. Uh, and they had uh, a hood in the front and an optional removable rear tonneau. So you can see the cars that have uh, front seats and back seats, the back seat actually removed and that was called the tonneau. Uh, so you could buy it with the seats in the back or you could buy it without. This car weighed approximately 750 pounds and had a flat water-cooled single cylinder engine uh, situated at the center of the vehicle, producing 10 horsepower up from 4.5 horsepower in the previous year's model. It had a semi-automatic transmission with two speeds forward and one speed back and also included pressure feed lubrication and a jump start admission system. Uh, and as you can see in the car on the front on the left-hand side at the bottom of the picture, uh, this was the first model to have a steering wheel as opposed to uh, the curved dash of previous models, uh, which had a tiller style uh, steering wheel. So the car has what is called a French front design, as opposed to the curved dash uh, that we saw, that we have seen in other vehicles and most specifically you saw in the picture earlier of the Winton. Um, and basically the curved dash basically looks like a carriage without a horse in front of it. Um, and so this design of uh, the French front was influenced by European car designs and gives the appearance of a front mounted engine. Uh, while in actual fact, this area houses the radiator and the fuel tank. And in addition, it has a wider wheelbase than the curved dash vehicles um, by about 13 inches. A buggy top was also offered as an option and you could also get never out oil lights. So headlights for the front of your car. At the same time as Canada was making small cars, the American company continued to make larger and fancier cars. By 1907, it was decided it was no longer practical to build cars in St. Catharines. So they didn't build them here for very long. Canadian production was discontinued due to a change in market need. These cars were seen to be too large and expensive for the Canadian market at the time. Oldsmobile's Canadian operation became just a selling and a servicing agency for imported vehicles and their headquarters were moved to Toronto. But let's circle back to 1905 when production began here at this particular factory. In December 1905, issue of the Canadian Machinery Magazine 
The Packard Electric Factory was described as, and I quote, the first plant in Canada to be built and designed for the manufacture of automobiles. The main feature of interest centering about this department is the machine shop in which are found the newest and best designs of machine tools in their particular line. In fact, when the installation was made, three quarters of these tools were the first of their kind in Canada. And nearly all cases, they were special tools bought solely for special work demanded for them, demanded of them. This included, and if you're a tool fanatic, this might be of interest to you. This included three Cincinnati milling machines, a Lodge and Shipley tool room lathe, a LeBlond lathe, a Washburn drill grinder, a Gould and Elverhart shaper, a Fellows shaper, and other specialty tools. Electricity for the factory was produced by a Crocker Wheeler generator. It should be noted that this is Canada's first production facility designed specifically for automobiles rather than merely adapted from an existing one. Their philosophy of auto design at a time when many cars relied heavily on labor intensive or shop fitted one of a kind parts, Packard emphasized machine tools and standard interchangeable parts. This is really important because prior to this, if you bought a car, Every single car was made, every bit was made on its own rather than building things in an assembly line type of style where parts could be interchangeable between one car and the next and they didn't have to be custom fitted. Uh, and so that's a really important point to be made here. This is prior to Henry Ford's moving assembly line, but it's a kind of a beginning of that idea. In 1909, Packard Electric sold the part of its real estate to the Rio Motor Car Company of Canada Limited, and Rio automobiles were manufactured in this plant until 1915. I will come back to Rio in a short while. But Oldsmobiles were not made in Canada again until 1920, when the newly founded General Motors of Canada began building them in Oshawa. So Oldsmobiles obviously were still sold in Canada because they had a sales office here, but they were no longer making them here. The St. Catharines Museum has in its collection an Oldsmobile touring runabout made in St. Catharines. Uh, and here's our vehicle here. Uh, there's not that much known about the early history of this vehicle prior to 1970. Um, and in 1970, the engine was found on a boat in Vancouver. Uh, by a gentleman named Fred Bell, who also gathered the chassis around the same time. The body and the linkage parts were recreated um, and uh, it was restored to its current uh, form, basically the way it looks now. During the 1980s, it was owned by a gentleman um, who operated a classic, private classic car museum in Victoria, BC. When he closed his private museum in 1989, uh, the car was sold and it was sold to a couple of different owners before coming to Ontario in the early 2000s. It seems that it was mostly owned um, for entertainment purposes, driving around in its heyday back in the early days of its ownership. Uh, it was owned in British Columbia. Um, 
but it did change owners a few times and eventually uh, it ended up in the museum's collection. This vehicle is actually a fairly rare vehicle to find in its restored format. The Packard Electric Company Oldsmobile was produced for less than two years, as we've heard. And today there are only four known to exist in the world. Uh, one in New Zealand, uh, one in the United Kingdom, and one in Pennsylvania, in addition to this particular vehicle. If we include American produced Oldsmobiles, because as we heard, they were making those cars here and they were also making them in the States, depending on where you lived. Uh, this vehicle is one of two still in Canada. The other one is in the collection at the Museum of Vancouver. From a technological standpoint, this vehicle is the bridge between the oldest vehicles, which were horseless carriages, as we talked about earlier, and the modern vehicle, which has the engine in the front. This, the engine on this car in the 1905 Oldsmobile is still under the front seat, but the radiator and the fuel tanks have been moved to the front of the vehicle to make it appear more modern and to compete with European styles at the time. So one thing I would note about our vehicle versus potentially other ones is, uh, as I mentioned, the vehicle has been restored. Most of them have been. Uh, and some of the restoration parts are slightly different from the original. This is an original drawing of what the vehicle uh, specs looked like in the factory. So there's a few things that are a little bit different, uh, but essentially our vehicle is, uh, is what it would have looked like if you were driving it or buying it new in 1904. One thing of interest that when we purchased this vehicle for the museum's collection is that the engine block on this vehicle has a number on it 001. Well, we can't uh, definitely say for sure. It's quite possible that this was the first engine off the line uh, at the St. Catharines factory. And we do know it was made in the St. Catharines, uh, in the St. Catharines factory. So let's move on and hear a little bit about this gent who is Ransom E. Olds, Ransom Eli Olds. And Ransom Eli Olds was born in Lansing, Michigan in 1864 and was the son of a blacksmith. And like the Packard brothers, who we've already heard about, uh, and many of the early manufacturing uh, personalities in St. Catherine's history, Ransom Olds was a tinkerer and an inventor uh, and incredibly smart engineer. Um, and he began working on his own steam-powered car in 1886, uh, but then fairly quickly realized that steam power is quite dangerous and trying to build a car with steam power was incredibly dangerous. Um, and so he decided to uh, move on from there. Um, and in 1886, he also designed and built his first carburetor. In 1896, he designed his first gas-powered vehicle uh, and he was also the first to institute a uh, type of assembly line, kind of similar to what we've already heard about uh, in the Packard Electric plant. In 1899, he invented and built a push button electric starter. And by 1900, um, as mentioned, he built his first assembly line to produce his gas powered car. Ransom Olds founded the Olds Mower Work in 1897. 
So it took him another two years to raise enough capital to advance beyond the tinkering stage. He, while he was incredibly intelligent when it came to building cars, money was a little bit more challenging from him, for him. And he experienced uh, financial difficulties throughout uh, the early part of his development of his company and uh, was able to continue forward with financing from a local lumber magnate, Samuel Smith. And when he got involved, they reorganized the company into the Olds Motor, Work, Motor Works. So Olds Motor Works is running along and they were building a bunch of different types of vehicles. Um, but as fate would have it, good or bad, whichever way you look at it, um, it turned out to be fortunate, but a fire destroyed the Olds factory. The only thing that was saved in the fire was a prototype motorized buggy, which Olds had developed as a potential low-priced car. Since this was all Olds had to work with, it became the famed Mary Oldsmobile, and thousands were sold. Many thousands were sold. So this is a picture here of the, uh, the one vehicle that was saved from the fire, the prototype. And so they moved ahead and started building these. Uh, one, some interesting things you can see, it has the curved dash front, like we talked about earlier, and it also has tiller steering. You can see that, uh, that the woman in this uh, image has the, uh, the tiller in her hand and she's steering the vehicle that way. The Olds Motor Work was not only noted for its automobiles, but for the automakers that it graduated. Engines for the first get curved dashed Olds were built by Henry Leland, who later headed up Cadillac and Lincoln, while the Dodge brothers built its transmissions. In 1904, Olds had a disagreement. Eli, Ransom Eli Olds had a disagreement with his board of directors, who was Smith, that we heard about earlier, who basically funded the company, and his two sons. They had a disagreement over the direction of the company. The small vehicle that Olds preferred, like the curved dash front here, versus the heavier and more luxurious cars that Smith preferred. And Olds left his own company to move back to Lansing, Michigan. With the loss of their founder, the company went under uh, and uh, was sold to William Durant, who eventually formed the General Motors Company. So all of this comes back around in big circles eventually. We're not gonna go through all of them, but some of them will come back around again uh, as we go forward. In 1904, uh, before we, I move on to this part, sorry, you can see here's a picture of Ransom Olds on the, uh, the left-hand side uh, driving around um, President uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who's in the back seat right behind him uh, in 1907. In 1904, as we heard, Ransom Olds left the Olds Motor Works and the US company started on an expansion program to build more bigger and more modern cars for the 1905 motor year. So we do hear that eventually the company goes out of business, but in the meantime, they, uh, they start to build bigger cars. Uh, but in the meantime, it seems that it was clear that there was a market for Oldsmobiles in Canada. So an agreement was reached with the, by the Olds Motor Company. So here's where some of this all comes back around. So an agreement was reached with the Olds Motor Company and the Packard Electric Company of St. Catharines to produce cars under license and several hundred were produced. 
and that was the uh, Packard Electric that we heard about earlier, um, the red car that we have in our collection. So the U.S. Packard Motor Company, uh, which produced cars, had moved to Detroit. As noted, assembly ceased in St. Catharines in 1907, and the newly formed Oldsmobile Company of Canada Limited uh, became a selling and servicing agency for imported Oldsmobiles, uh, and they moved their uh, sales office to 80 King Street East in Toronto. So the plant stood idle until it was purchased by the Rio Motor Car Company in 1909. So also as mentioned on January 16, 1909, the automotive department of Packard Electric was sold uh, to the Rio Motor Car Company of Lansing, Michigan. The company had been formed by Ransom E. Olds after his departure from Olds Motor Works. The plant went back into production in, in April 1909. The Canadian branch of, of the Rio started out as the Rio Automobile Company Limited. It was formed on December 30th, 1908 in Windsor, Ontario, um, and then moved to St. Catharines, and the move became official on January 23rd, 1909. So they didn't stay in Windsor for very long when the company's name was changed to Rio Motor Car Company of Canada Limited. Capital stock was increased fivefold uh, and $99,500 worth of stock was issued to Packard Electric because they owned the building in exchange for their complete automobile plant and a lump sum of $10,000. So this is how it all changed hands. Business was booming and the plant capacity was accomplished in the late summer uh, of 1912. And at that point, they were building from 600 to 1200 cars per annum. A major promotional event for, for the Canadian branch of Rio was a coast to coast drive by the Englishman Thomas Wilby of 19, in 1912. Uh, and he took along with him a local gentleman, uh, FB Jack Haney, who was a local mechanic. The trick, we'll talk a little bit, bit more about this trip in a little while. Uh, but essentially, the trip took place uh, between August 27th and October 18th, 1912. Uh, and there were a few remarkable failure or a few uh, mechanical failures on this tour, which was a great boon for the Rio car company to show how reliable their cars were. That's kind of what the trip was all about. Uh, and it also, this I thought was really interesting, used Dunlop traction tread tires were used for the entire trip and no flats were suffered. Pretty impressive to go all the way across Canada without a flat. In 1909, Rio introduced a four-cylinder car powered by a 34, a 35 horsepower, uh, 226 cubic inch engine with F-head design, uh, which had inlet valves in the head and exhaust in the block, if you're a car uh, aficionado. And from 1907 to 1913, the Packard Electric Company produced the Rio in St. Catharines. In 1911, Jack Haney, one of the best mechanics working for Olds, decided to relocate to the year-old Canadian location of the Rio Motor Car Company in St. Catharines. Haney was the company's star troubleshooter, uh, and he used to cross the country by train 
uh, to fix broken down rios. And he could usually be seen speeding around the Niagara Peninsula, uh, testing new cars uh, for at least 160 kilometers before allowing the body to be added to the car. So he would test drive them prior to that. Production of the Rio ended in 1913 for two reasons. Firstly, production costs had become prohibitive since competition was fierce and Ford, Henry Ford had just perfected his moving assembly lines, which made the cost of building cars go down substantially for him. He was able to build cars for a lot cheaper than all these other factories that were building one-off cars or that were doing similar to what was happening uh, at the Rio factory where they were building a kind of a hybrid version of an assembly line. Another reason, the second reason why the company went out of business was that they decided that they were gonna make the decision to try and save weight when building their cars. And by doing that, they decided they were gonna use a pressed fiber body uh, for the body parts of the car, which was built by the Chatham Carriage Company. Sadly, this scheme turned into a nightmare. Not surprising since it's a pressed fiber body, it's not a metal body. Um, not surprisingly, the panels were not completely weatherproof and moisture um, quickly caused distortion and disintegration of the body parts. The end of production was followed by the opening of the sales office in St. Catharines, uh, which I think there was an ad here, there it is, um, sales office in St. Catharines, and uh, they also organized the first public garage in the city. The parent plant in Michigan stopped auto produ production in 1914 uh, to build military tracks for the Canadian government. The St. Catharines plant was activated again in 1915, even though they stopped building cars here, the plant was, up, was brought online in order to build shrapnel shells for the for war effort in the First World War, as you can see in this uh, particular drawing from um, the St. Catharines uh, fire insurance map from 1913. Rio's Canadian head offices were moved to Windsor in 1922 and later to Toronto. While the level of technology was high, the dependence on outside sources apparently low, yet the domestic market in Canada did not permit profitable or competitive manufacturing. The early years of in industry in Canada were particularly unstable. The reason for the short production life was one that would be heard later about American cars. The Oldsmobile built in St. Catharines was an American design that had become too large and expensive for the Canadian market. And so on November 7th, 1912, the shareholders authorized Packard Electric to sell the Rio shares at the best price obtainable that they could get over $60,000. At a time when many cars relied heavily on labor-intensive or shop-fitted one-of-a-kind parts, Packard emphasized machine tools and standard interchangeable parts. This is a really great picture of the interior of the, uh, the factory prior to uh, Rio closing up. Uh, one thing I would like to note about this picture is that uh, all of the machinery was belt driven, as I mentioned earlier in the presentation, and you can see uh, to the right of the picture, there's a belt that's running that piece of machinery and kind of right in the center of the shot, um, kind of there's a man with his head sandwiched between 
the, the belts, but uh, there's a belt running the piece of machinery closest to the front. So the St. Catharines Museum also has a Rio motor car. And this is the car here in this picture. The car at the St. Catharines Museum is a two-seater Roadster Coupe, four-cylinder, with a serial number of 1602. It was manufactured in 1912 in St. Catharines, Ontario. And it's been in the museum's collection since 1990. The car originally belonged to, or was bought by Jack Riley, who paid uh, somewhere between $1,400 and $1,500 for it new. And he bought it, uh, um, and they, they, he thinks that this, they think that this was the, the first or the second vehicle made of this model. Uh, one interesting thing to note about the Canadian mo model of this car is that the rear fenders on the Canadian model are referred to as torpedo fenders, uh, rather than curving down at the at the rear, they gently curve out at the ends, so it gives it kind of a, a little bit of a snazzier look to it. Uh, in the American cars, they usually went straight, straight down at the back. When the car was advertised for sale new in 1913, the car boasted state-of-the-art features such as a speedometer, uh, windshield, a mohair top, and curtains, a complete tool kit, parking lamps, and both electric and bulb horns. And uh, I believe I mentioned earlier, but uh, the car was restored beginning in 1951 and 52. So I'm gonna circle back a little and talk about uh, why manufacturing was so difficult and so um, volatile in Canada prior to the First World War. The behavior of various Canadian governments, both federal and provincial, had major effects on the demand for and the supply of automobiles in Canada. Public road buildings were slow and kept the automobile from achieving its potential as quickly as might have been possible. Uh, as an example, Prince Edward Island even outlawed the automobile between 1901 and 1911. However, you have to put a little bit of the blame on the federal government at the time. Um, the Canadian tariff structure was designed to generate automobile-related re employment in Canada. In fact, the notion of a domestic industry became quickly associated not with Canadian-owned and financed firms, but with Canadians working in factories, building essentially U.S. products within a U.S. financial and industrial framework. This approach was not unique to the auto industry and was co common across industry in general. So essentially tariffs were so high to bring things across the border that it was cheaper to build them in Canada uh, to be used here, um, but on with still using an American company rather than starting your own company here in Canada. Canada imposed a general 35% duty on automobiles uh, which was a carryover from the days of buggies, carriages, and bicycles. The burden on the Canadian buyer was even greater than the tariff structure suggests. The Canadian consumer also paid 5% sales tax plus 5% federal excise tax on the first $1,200 in value and 10% on the surplus. Um, trucks and commercial vehicles were accepted from, accepted from that rule. The U.S. consumer, as a contrast, suffered only a mere 3% excise tax. So let's have an example. The Ford Model T touring car, which most people have seen from videos of seeing the uh, assembly line plant uh, from the Ford company. 
was it cost $535 to buy it in Canada before tax, um, but was only $395 to purchase in the United States. And this was in 1926. It's a little bit later than our period, but gives us a good example. In Canada, motoring, driving around cars was an, a more expensive proposition, uh, more so than in the United States. Uh, and this would have undoubtedly uh, reduced the, um, the demand for cars. One thing I wanted to note in this picture um, is if you look at the sales office here in the back of uh, this, um, behind the, the truck here, you can see uh, windows, stained glass windows with Rio on them. And uh, the museum also has one of these stained glass windows uh, hanging above the, uh, the Rio car in our gallery. We'll come back to that. Um, let's talk just a tiny little bit more about tariffs. You know it's incredibly exciting. A reduced tariff of 30% was applied to imported components. So assembler firms were encouraged by this, but not to the extent that it compelled manufacturers to move to Canada. And in a strange twist, there was a 99% drawback on taxes and duties paid on imported parts installed in exported vehicles, exported automobiles. Since one of the major attractions for US firms was access to the British empire market um, that provided colonial preferences, uh, the drawback made amortizing the already low initial cost of an assembly plant even faster. And there was no financial compulsion to build parts that could be imported. So essentially, American companies really wanted to build parts in Canada so that they could get preferential duties on the rest of the colonial market that the British were uh, controlling around the world. But the, it wasn't good enough of a deal for local Canadian manufacturers to start their own plants. It was a good deal for Americans to build American cars here uh, to um, import to the uh, colonial market. When tariffs were reduced all over the place across the Commonwealth and between Canada and the United States, that pretty much um, changed the whole um, framework of how manufacturing worked for automobiles in Canada and the United States. So that arrangement also was the it was tantamount to death for the any hopes for a domestic parts industry. So that's all I have to say about tariffs. It's a long and complicated and a little bit more than probably wanted to hear tonight. But let's talk about one interesting uh, uh, thing about. Um, the Rio motor car and a really interesting PR stunt uh, that they decided to take on in 1912. In 1912, Mr. Thomas Wilby, who you can see in this picture on the left-hand side, uh, with the support of the Canadian Highway Association, sponsored by the Rio Motor Car Company, uh, proposed to travel across Canada from the Atlantic to the Pacific along the all red route. The All Red Line, which you can see in this picture, uh, was an informal name for the system of electrical telegraphs that linked much of the British Empire. It was opened in, on, inaugurated as a whole on the 31st of October, 1902. And the, the, the name All Red Line actually comes from the uh, common practice of uh, coloring territories on the map 
coloring territories of the British Empire, either red or pink on political maps of the world. So I'm sure most people have seen these maps that talk about uh, the sun never setting on the British Empire and all the imp imperial countries, these colonial countries are painted red on the map. Uh, and that's really where the name, the all red line uh, came from. Uh, so this patriotic name for an all Canadian route to the Pacific was uh, really more in the imagination of people uh, then uh, actually built on the ground. Thomas Wilby was a journalist and a writer uh, and had done a similar trip in the United States the year before. Uh, so he really wanted to see what he could do with this in Canada. And uh, really it was more than just self-promotion. The trip was also a really great uh, way to push forward the idea of a Trans-Canada Highway as well as the Good Roads Movement. Thomas Wilby at the time of the trip was 45 years old and he was accompanied by Fonts Jack Haney, who was 23, who acted as his mechaniker, mechanic and driver for the trip. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Jack Haney had moved up from the United States in 1909 uh, when Rio opened their plant in St. Catharines. He worked as a test driver, mechanic, and star troubleshooter for the company. And so here these two gents are uh, going to take this trip across Canada as a great PR stunt to uh, show that he can drive this car and it's gonna do really well uh, all the way across Canada. On August 27th, 1912 in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the Rio car was backed up so that the wheels dipped into the Atlantic Ocean and they, they were on their way across the country. One other thing to note, which we'll see later on in our pictures, is that they also had a little vial that they filled with water from the Atlantic Ocean that they took with them along the trip. Interestingly, uh, Wilby and Haney did not get along. Uh, it was like oil and water. Uh, essentially, this had a lot to do with the fact that Wilby um, had a bit of a high-handed treatment of Haney uh, who he kind of saw as his servant for the trip, whereas obviously Jack Haney didn't think that way uh, and uh, felt that uh, Thomas Wilby was not so useful along the way. So they continued across. On October 18th, 1912, the front tires of the car were dipped in the Pacific Ocean at uh, Port Alberni, BC, on the west coast of Vancouver Island. The trip, trip took 7,841 kilometers and 52 days to complete. This is a great picture because it shows you the quality of the roads that, this is a good quality road that they would have seen while they were running along there. Uh, in fact, the adventurers were forced to cross the US border as well as travel by ferries, steamers, and rail freight cars. Uh, so that they could, uh, so really they couldn't claim to be the first, first to cross the continent solely on Canadian soil and roads. There were still few roads running through uh, much of the country. So here's another, this picture uh, here is in, on Vancouver Island. Most of these pictures are in BC. Um, here they are in Victoria, BC. And here they are at the Port Alberni Board of Trade with all the, the gents from Port Alberni uh, ready to cheer the fact that they're here at the end of their trip and uh, they're going to uh, um, touch the Pacific Ocean. And so uh, here they are 
putting the front wheels of the Rio into the Pacific Ocean. And you can see uh, Thomas Wilby has the little vial of water from the Atlantic Ocean, which he's pouring into the Pacific Ocean. Here's another staged photo, uh, which I thought was a really interesting photo of the group again pouring Atlantic Ocean water into, uh, into the Pacific. Jack Haney returned to St. Catharines to a celebratory dinner. Uh, and he's actually in this picture to the right of the uh, the woman in the picture, right in the center of the photo. He's the one wearing the little peaked, uh, peaked hat. Uh, and on his return to St. Catharines, he was presented with an engraved gold watch by the company. And here's a picture of it here. Uh, and this is currently on display at the uh, the St. Catharines Museum. Here's uh, a photo of the um, the engraving. And so I'm just going to tell you for the last couple of minutes a little bit about the Rio car in our collection. Um, but before I do, just a reminder that there's a lag in our broadcast. So if you have any final questions for me, please put them in the chat now so I can get them before the end of the lecture. So this car, uh, you've already heard about the specs of the car and what it is, but let's talk a little bit about how it ended up in our collection. Uh, it ended up in our collection thanks to this gent here on the left-hand side, who is Mike Guzzi, who restored the Rio car uh, in the museum's collection. And Guzzi was a, an immigrant to Canada and came to Canada in 1929 and worked his way uh, through the Depression by working in laundries and restaurants. And then later, during the Second World War, became a lathe operator at the Philip Aircraft Plant in Montreal where he was found by the personnel manager at McKinnon's uh, and he recruited him to come and work at McKinnon in St. Catharines. And he continued to work at McKinnon, which later became General Motors until his retirement in 1970. He worked on the Rio car from the time he purchased it uh, and continued to work on the restoration. And by 1981, he had it on the road and was able to drive it around. He donated the Rio car to the St. Catharines Museum in 1990, and it was installed in the new galleries when the museum opened at Lock 3 in 1991. And uh, Mike Guzzi died in 1993. So this is the story of early car manufacturing in St. Catharines. As I mentioned early on in the presentation, uh, it doesn't touch on other big, the other big car manufacturing story in our city, which most people would recognize, which was McKinnon and General Motors. Uh, but that will have to be for a whole other lecture um, because we only have so much time. Thank you so very much for joining me this evening uh, on our drive through the horseless revolution in St. Catharines. Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, 
Archaeology of a 19th Century Shipyard. The Virtual Museum Lecture Series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre.